Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and today, is it time to split up the major internet players, the likes of Amazon and Facebook and Google? Have they just got too big for their boots, and are they distorting the market? If so, why aren't we treating them like any other monopoly? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Now, my weekly radio show here in London recently, I spoke to Jonathan Taplin, who's a Hollywood movie producer, who was behind the movies Mean Streets and To Die For, amongst others. And he's also been a music producer who worked with Bob Dylan and the band many years ago. And last year, he wrote a book, Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, in which he expressed concern about the role that these big companies are having on society and how they're basically taking over and absorbing other companies. So, so, in other words, if Facebook had to compete with Instagram and WhatsApp, and they were actual competitors and still, instead of all being owned by, by Facebook, then one of them might offer you a service that wasn't so intrusive, that wasn't built on the idea of surveillance as the core part of their, their business. And that would be a differentiator. And maybe you'd say, well, I'd rather have that service that didn't require me to tell them what my religious or political affiliation was and and spy on me and know exactly every piece of music or what team I follow. And, you know, I mean, that's just pernicious mm, and that is of course just part of the uh, whole thing that the, the internet has done for us uh for example what has it steve what has the internet done for us well it's it's decreased revenues in in a lot of industries like the media and movies and music it's closed down retailers it's having a good job at trying to close down newspapers as well it's polarizing opinion uh because we're basically getting feedback that's exactly the same as our own when we uh, look at our facebook feeds it's created a culture of instant gratification rather than consideration and introspection. Like, for example, those days when we used to have to go out and buy music, for example, rather than just getting it straight away. It's reduced the number of people with jobs. So there's no wage pressures, it seems, and uh, it's possibly re- uh, reducing our living standards as a result of that. And it's added to uh, to, the, to the rich-poor gap. Apart from that, how do you think it's working out for us? <laughs> That's like an introduction. The, the, uh, what have the Romans done for us? <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, it's, it is, there's a lot of bad news there, isn't there? And it's pretty hard to argue that, you know, those uh, factors are not being driven by the influence of, of online. Yeah, I mean, certainly what the online thing has, has done is enable the major reason why monopolies develop is economies of scale. And the internet is a dramatic increase in those economies of scale because yeah. in the past, if you wanted to market books uh, to uh, a, um, a, an audience, you have an audience would have to physically walk to your shop, check out what books were there, decide what to buy, and then uh, get them and you know, carry them out of the shop themselves. Then you got to mail order catalogs 
And of course, mail order catalogs worked. They were quite effective. That increased the, the marketing range substantially. So major book chains could come out of that because they would be the ones who'd have a wider range of books in their catalog than the local corner shop would have. What you have evolving out of that is like an internal command economy inside a market economy. Mm. Because now when I think, I mean, I'm afraid I, I, I just automatically go to Amazon to look for most things I want to buy. Yes, yeah, so do and, I. And, it, and it, it, it has convenience, you know, because you don't have to yeah. go and uh, struggle against shoppers. But, uh, and I don't, I if this figure is right, and uh, I think it is, but it's scary it's forecast it's going to have 50 percent of the and i think this might just be in the united states the retail market gross merchandise volume so uh you know half of everything sold basically by 2020 which is not particularly far away no half of everything yeah. sold will be through amazon all those other yeah. all those other online stores all those other bricks and mortar stores uh they're the other 50 percent that i mean that's shocking isn't it and yet why is that not not a monopoly? Well, it is it is a monopoly, but this, uh, in terms of a distribution. Uh, but economics tends to argue that if you uh, broke it down a competitive system rather than having a single monopoly, you break it down competitively, you'd have more output at lower price. In fact, the reverse applies. Uh, when you have a large uh, monolith like Amazon, so long as it's efficiently driven internally and that's it's driven to you know frightening levels of efficiency really internally with the, the warehouses automated warehouses the uh, very very regimented command system for the workers in those factories and so on you can see internal exposés of journalists who go and work there for a while and see what it's like to be in a, what do they call it, a fulfilment centre, I think. Mm. Uh, and it's the opposite of fulfilment for the workers who work there. But it's the, it, it fulfills it's the good, There's actually people are getting paid even less than journalists. That's been the shocking news for a lot of them. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and this, but this means a, a, fundamentally that large-scale system has economies of scale which small ones do not have. If you changed over to the old competitive model, your cost would rise. And this is why Amazon's been able to eat up so much of the market. No. Plus also one little tactic, which I wasn't aware of how successful this tactic would be with Bozos, but he basically prices so he makes no profit. What actually happens is a rise in the value of the shares. And that's why people continue buying Amazon. It pays zero dividends, but the share price rises all the time. And they manage to evade tax because you get taxed on your income, which is out of profits, not your capital capital gain, which is one of the many mistakes in the tax the tax system to allow that to happen. So, do we need to rethink uh, our definition of what a uh, of a non- monopoly is then? Because 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 obviously, the, you know, the, the initial argument for monopolies were that they would. Uh, take advantage of their monopoly to push prices higher. Uh, and the last thing in the world you'd want is a monopolies commission that was going to do something that was going to p- make prices higher because they get rid of economies of scale, but maybe they need well, to. Well, another thing is economies, this is the, the weakness in the... In the if you look back to the 19th century and see where did our anti-monopoly ideas come from in the first place, it was really out of the behaviour of the robber barons of America in particular, where they would be, and it's applied with the railroads, which relates <coughs> partly to the land story you talked about last time around. <coughs> Pardon me. The, the robber barons would, when the railways came in, they could then take the wheat from a region which only had a localised distribution of wheat, take that wheat for sale, to ship it across to uh, you know, selling the European market or in the, you know, beginning in the big cities in America, but also selling it overseas. And the the robber barons would come in and buy up the land around where the railway was going, going to be built, um, grab that land value increase for themselves, wipe out the locals, 
uh, take over the farms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so to stop that sort of behaviour, that's where the antitrust, pardon me again, <coughs> that's where the antitrust uh, elements of American law came from. Now, that was a sensible thing he wanted to restrain, but neoclassical economics said, oh, monopolies are bad because they increase price and reduce volume. It's the exact opposite that they do. Because of the economies of scale, they reduce price, they increase volume, but they squeeze out alternatives, they squeeze out the local community. Yeah, because, I mean, Google, um, you know, has faced many antitrust cases and has used the argument. Google, who, by the way, has three quarters of all global search results. They've got revenues of $110 billion, so they're not doing bad really they've always argued that they don't have any control over price because basically most of their revenue is coming from search advertising and it's keyword advertising where people are bidding for the ads so they are you know their argument in you know lots of antitrust cases has been um that they don't have any control over price because it's bid for and uh, if you had 10 googles the price would be the same because people would still be bidding for for the ads and that's always been okay. their, that's always or been the their price. argument against their, their monopoly and the price, or the price could be higher. So you, you do, you, you, we don't have an effective model of what is, what to be criticised about monopolies. And I'll, I'll mention one piece of, of research which I really, really like on this front by my uh, colleague and friend, uh, Paul Ormerod, because Paul uh, was a, is a classic multi-agent modeller. And if you looked at the, uh, the definition that neoclassical economics makes of competition, competition is a state for them. And that state is where there's lots of small firms who have no market power. The way the neoclassical theory defines competition and quality in a very linear way. So the more, the better for competition for them. The more firms, the better. Uh, whereas what Paul found in doing his simulation was in, ter- in terms of the outcome, and he defined the outcome in two ways, low price, high quality. And he used this, <coughs> pardon me, it was, of course, it has to be numerical simulation. So Zero was low price, one was high price. Uh, in, in fact, the other way around, one, one was high quality, zero was low quality. And you wanted to get, you, you, your preferred optimum would be to get low price and high quality for the market. And in doing the simulations, he found that outcome of low price and high quality was unrelated to the number of competitors that survived the, the process of competing over time, so long as there's more than one. And in, in that situation, uh, you 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 don't find you need a large number. You say if we what 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 are we trying to do? We're providing we're trying to provide goods to the widest number of people at the lowest possible cost. Then it turns out these monoliths uh, like the Googles and the Amazons are actually successful at that. Mm. And so it's not it's not a case that they're ripping off the public. They're successful because they're undercutting the cost the public otherwise faces yeah. with a more disaggregated system. But then what what you have to look at and this is um, I, I don't particularly worry about Amazon becoming as dominant as it is. What I worry about are the conditions for the work, the workers inside Amazon uh, facilities. Are they being turned to automatons in various ways? Are their wages too low? I'd rather look at that. And but that, I mean, that, can, of- that surely is easily fixed if if it's policed correctly. I mean, you just need to make sure there's there's very strong government regulations to insist to ensure that that's not happening, which might push which, price, which, which might push prices up a little bit. But hell, you know, most of it's being done by robots anyway, so it's not going to have a significant impact. And we've of course eroded the capacity to do that by weakening unions over the last forty years. So, yeah. uh, in in some ways, if you look at a an effective countervailing force. It's not necessarily one firm competing with another firm. It's people representing the workers competing with those representing 
the, the owners of capital. And we've, we've weakened the capacity to do that sort of internal monitoring inside systems like Google and so on and, and Amazon. The, the Google, of course, by the looks of it, treats their workers a damn sight better than, uh, than Amazon's warehouse workers get treated. So if we look at all of these cases then, so if we look at Amazon, Google and Facebook in different ways. The issue is that, that you know, they're, they're all doing uh, things which are better than could be done by several of them if you broke them up yeah you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't get any advantage but so well, it's just it's, it's, so it's, yeah, yeah. it's their behavior in fact that uh, that is part of the concern uh, so in, in amazon you know how much are they paying their workers what are their working conditions like in facebook it's how are they sharing our data uh, yeah. you know what are their ethical uh, boundaries uh, i guess it's a, it's a, it's a similar argument with google which uh, google you know is has a and Facebook between them control pretty much all of the online advertising market. Well, three quarters of it anyway. Um, so it, it's so there's ethical questions and and but a lot of this is is sort of related to stuff that can be fixed through regu- just more government intervention, more government regulation, and as you say, more union power. But it's also um, if you look at what's actually going on, it's not competition, not Amazon squeezing out alternative retailers which we're complaining about it's amazon getting power against the distributors that that is the issue yeah and if like again well you and i having an australian background i can talk about the woolworths case uh where woolworths was seen as squeezing the margins for its supplies so much that it was barely worth being a dairy farmer to produce this stuff so it's not the power it's not an individual firm within a particular market squeezing out its competitors it's the impact of that particular essential part of the chain being able to squeeze the margins for the remainder of capitalism right well that would be fixed by two amazons wouldn't it uh not necessarily because they might behave in the same way right Uh, you get them well that would be collusion if they did well i guess no because they both would because they both want to keep prices as low as possible yeah, yeah 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 so we we do get this area where power turns up as part of the equation in in how well the market's economy works and one of the mythologies of neoclassical economics is that power can be eliminated. Now, what we find is, of course, that doesn't happen. We get power being focused in a group like Amazon, and then it's got the capacity to squeeze the suppliers to give lower margins and so on uh, to its publishers. Uh, equally, it can go past them and give writers direct access and so on. But they, it is the relative power of one industry to another. And, of course, retailing is an essential industry in that sense. But it's, no self, it's no sense producing stuff if you can't get it to the market. So they then Amazon becomes a, for anybody. It, it's a great facility, but it's also a great. Uh, uh, it, it's a it's a power unit that you don't have power against. Uh, coming from a another industry source, uh, it it can squeeze the margins of everybody. What would happen? Um, what would happen then if if a government or all governments got together and said, right, well, we're not happy about fifty uh, percent market share for one company. We're going to insist the maximum uh, gross merchandise volume for any for any company in the retail sector is ten percent. So Amazon, you've got to split yourself into five separate companies. Don't care how you do it, but you've got to sell four of them. Well, we have a pre- we have a precedent for that, and that was the deregulation of American telecommunications from the, when we used to have the uh, the uh, the Ma Bell company, the uh, Bell Telephone Company, uh, which which came out of Thomas Edison and so on, and I think and, and the Bell corporation and they broke them up on this whole basis to get what they called baby bells and you had a dramatic degradation in the quality of american telecommunications which has only been addressed successfully by mobile telecommunications in the last 10 to 15 years but uh that that breakdown what what, the reason that a group like amazon will work so successfully is that there's a network uh that it is part of where it plays a key role of distributing elements between uh nodes of that network and the, the, 
breaking it into many separate little networks can actually mean you've got to have communication between networks of networks that works less well than that sort of centralized nervous system that something that Amazon becomes. So, but, but you do, I'm, but you do sort of commoditize choice, though, don't you? So, say, say you did break Amazon into five; those, and you know, they'd probably break them up into sort of catalog lines or something like that. But then over time, uh, you know, th- that would change as those companies develop their own unique identities. And one might say, for example, uh, well, look, you know, we are going to be very uh, focused on the environment. We're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to b- promote ourselves as the company that costs more, but we sell, uh, you know, uh, sustainable goods. So we sell organic food. Well, okay, Amazon's tried to do that themselves as well. I must admit, but but you you know you sort of like take a slant, take a, take a choice from the market. We're a bit more expensive, but we're giving you this choice. And by the way, we don't screw our suppliers, which is why we're a bit more expensive. Versus Amazon, it might look quite bad then saying, well, actually, we do screw our suppliers which is why we're so cheap you know if you get that competition then people have a, a choice and you'd hope those sorts of differences would start to emerge or am i just being yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm idealist, idealist. <laughs> I, I i think the, the the success of that economy as a scale is so great that it tends to overwhelm that effect and you know i mean i i do there is a, a marvelous benefit for me i was in a conversation with a a, 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 a venture capitalist stroke entrepreneur and Los Angeles, San Francisco yesterday, and in the price of the conversation mentioned two or three books, which he bought while we were having a conversation. Yeah. Uh, and the, the simplicity that comes with that is an enormous benefit to us as consumers. So, and, we, so we accept it then, but then we have all, yeah. those, all those problems that I gave at the beginning. And all of those problems, of course, so conventional economics says, well, it doesn't matter that no one's employed in these industries uh, anymore because uh, they'll be employed in something else. Uh, the question- well, the, the conventional economics says the things have got much more expensive and there's less of them because of the monopoly, and then the exact opposite is what's happened. Right, but aside, aside yeah, because it, it has because economies of scale have kicked in. But on the other, but, but the other yeah. side, all the people losing their jobs um, because uh, we don't need them to work in retail stores anymore, you know, conventional economics says, well, that's fine because they'll find a job doing something else, but they're not, are they? And that's, that's the no, other that, part that's, of the that's, equation. That's, it's a rather separate issue to this, but the, the issue... But it's crazy about this. this one of those things I create, you know, with that long list of good things that the internet's done for us. Uh, I can give you them again. <laughs> it's, re- it's reduced overall revenues in, you know, in a lot of key areas because of that screwing of suppliers, which we've talked about. It's polarised opinion, uh, which we've sort of talked about, about, you know, this need for more regulation, perhaps. Um, it's, uh, we you know, instant gratification, uh, which we're saying is a good thing, but, you know, consideration and introspection is a good thing too, and we seem to be losing that. But that's a societal yeah. upshot from all of it. But the key one, reducing the number of jobs. So there's, you know, um, less wage pressures. And, you know, what's it doing to our living standard? And it's also adding to the rich-poor gap. And, uh, you know, they are, I mean, they're the big consequences of our cheap and convenience goods from Amazon. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that I think is a major issue, comes back to journalism as well, uh, you have to have a system of micropayments that works to make this feasible. Uh, Amazon has got such huge economies of scale and it's selling, you know, books, it's selling commodities and so on. And the delivery system is much cheaper uh, than its rival systems. So that's been an effective revenue system for it. And we've had this growth of organizations like Amazon. But journalism has died. And this is, I think it's a major, a major issue for us as a culture because when you had quality journalism, and certainly the quality of journalism on average was much greater back when you paid journalists a dollar a word uh, uh, in the 1960s and the 1970s. And I got paid a dollar a word. I'm talking from my own <laughs> experience. Um, yeah. 
And then went you, to, one you, day it suddenly went to 50 cents a word. What, what, what day was that? And then, it's, then it's 10 cents a word and so on. Mm. And, and, and what you, you get is just a degradation in the quality. And a major reason for it is the failure to work out a system of micropayments. Mm. And this is still the case. So I'm, I'm, I'll just, I'm, I don't actually make much use of it. I, I haven't uh, done it for my own revenue so far. But there's an Australian company called Inkle, I-N-K-L, and they're trying to be a news aggregator. Uh, and I pay fifteen dollars a month to subscribe, but I'm really behaving as a consumer of it rather than a a, uh, a producer. But their idea is to have you know things like the New York Times, Washington Post, um, I'm not quite as far as Breitbart, but a wide spectrum of news sources, and they provide an aggregator for all that. So when you pay for Inkle, if you read an article. Uh, and you're paying, say, $15 a month to Inkle. Uh, for each article you read, say, the 10 cents goes to the original producer of that article, which would be the New York Times, mm. which then goes to the journalist. Yeah. And you get a revenue that means the New York Times might actually pay the journalist a better salary. Or it could just be the journalist direct, of course, couldn't it? I mean, you might get a model. So then, that, that also... Yeah, and I, yeah. Think, I think maybe what you're leading to here is the idea that perhaps uh, online allows sort of almost cottage industries to develop, whether it's, it's journalism or somebody who's uh, uh, weaving baskets or uh, what, whatever you might be doing. Yeah. So it's sort of like that opportunity. So it's, it's, it, it, yeah. so it's not just the internet alone. It's, it's, it's the payment system that goes with it. Yeah. And I've got to dip my hat here to Patreon on that front because yeah. that is providing uh, not just obviously I'm benefiting from it, but there's a large number of artists which are, may, who are making some revenue out of this now because the people who wish that artists to continue producing their material are paying money to them through Patreon. And that is a form of micropayments. It's not as diversified as, as journalism used to give us. But I think partly the reason that Internet's caused this, such disruption is it provided a communication system without at the same time having a financial system to support it. So you can get enormous aggregations like Amazon, which exploit the fact that the Internet dramatically expands the market. You could you can sell to, so it gives you massive economies of scale compared to your more localised, you know, lo- location-based competitors. Uh, but it's destroyed journalism and destroyed a number of other industries at the same time because they haven't worked out a way to get a revenue stream out of that. Right. But you think they will. So do you think all these, and you know, not just in journalism, but generally, these people who've lost their jobs because they worked in stores or they worked in newspapers or they worked in, in industries where there were numerous intermediaries which have been replaced by the internet. Do you think they will, the internet will create enough new jobs through sort of like, perhaps through this sort of like the idea that we all go back to cottage industries and no, work No, I don't. <laughs> right. No, I don't. It's a nice because idea, I, I, but yeah. It's a nice fantasy, but I think again at the same time, uh, a huge proportion of the population was employed in jobs that, I'm going to uh, mention an old 19th century philosophy here, that Marx never thought would happen because he saw us being driven into a proletariat on one side and we're working in manual labour, capitalists on the other, nothing in the middle. In fact, there was an enormous growth of what's in the middle called the middle class because to run these large organisations rather than the corner shop philosophy that was underlies neoclassical thinking, you needed a huge bureaucracy. You needed a lot of people to actually do the physical delivery, the warehousing and so on. What the internet is part of is a process of mechanising all that. Yeah. And we can see that with, you know, at some point we won't be able to complain about how badly Amazon's treated workers because there will be no workers inside the warehouse apart from those who service the machines to the extent the machines can't service themselves. So it is a de, a de workerization what a dreadful word we've got to find a better word than that but, but, <laughs> but de- you heard it here first folks <laughs> a, de- de- no, a, de- a dehumanization yeah 
That's what it it's is, a, a dehumanisation of production that will happen. And Amazon is at the forefront of that. Now the question is, what sort of societies that give you? Can people afford to buy the Amazon books if they can't get a job? Uh, that's in every case, these limits come back to where do you get the aggregate demand? But the, but the people the who are working on the production line don't have a don't have it. Well, they possibly haven't had a job for a long time because robots have taken taken take, taken those jobs away a long time ago. But I mean, uns, unskilled jobs. Uh, they, they, I mean, they are they are clearly disappearing. But then what you're also saying is that middle class jobs are are also disappearing unless you create it yourself and uh, uh, yeah and at that level you're getting you're getting only a minority of the population can actually benefit from that uh, it, it, it takes a certain level of skill to, to do the creative writing uh, that people are saying we can all go to when we cease being process workers uh, that is not the case so you know unless we have a uh, you know a, <laughs> a sort of biological eugenics where we raise the intelligence of everybody but we're, we're never going to get enough because machines can harness so much more energy uh, and do things much more rapidly than humans can with their limited energy processing capability, ultimately all this stuff is going to go the way of machinery. Right. And and therefore we have to confront a future society where uh, workers can't get an income by blackmailing capitalists by saying we won't press that button unless you pay us a decent wage. Those days are going. And that challenges the actual basis of capitalism itself. But, you know, the the economy, I, I guess the problem is, it's the scale at each end, isn't it? So I could, for example, I'm fairly sure, for the rest of my life, manage to scrape by a living, a living from, you know, sort of warbling on um, in, in some sort of fashion, as I do now, and uh, getting paid a modicum of money for that. And, and in that, you know, perhaps being having enough money for having paying somebody to, for example, uh, fix things around the house or chop wood or whatever it is, you know, other jobs which I'm helping to create but that economy that i'd be living in you know that the the level of house that i'd be able to afford to keep and maintain would be very different to uh, those people who are very lucky to be in working for the big companies where they're getting paid exorbitant amounts of money because they are creaming so much off the top of everybody else they're part of the network and uh, mm. what we're seeing is people being driven out of that network as we manage to mechanize more and more of the production processes. So the internet has enabled that to go far further than it would have happened if we had to rely upon mail order catalogs. That's that's the point. That the old grattans. Yeah. So uh, how do we so how do we control it then? Or do we? I mean, it seems like you're saying, well, we don't control it, but then we still have this big this widening uh, rich poor gap as a result of it, and you know, question mark over lots of jobs. Yeah, and that's we have to resolve that at a social level. I don't think we can resolve it at the level of changing the pricing inside uh, the, the capitalist system as, as it exists uh, or trying to drive more competitors or breaking up firms and stuff like that. That's not going to work. But we have to say at some point, well, uh, you know, do we provide a basic income for everybody? This no. is where I, yeah. I differ from a lot of post-Keynesians. I am in favour of a basic income as well as a job guarantee Uh where a lot of the you'll see a lot of correspondence on the on the web with people who are pro UBI universal basic income fighting those who are pro JG job guarantee and it's rather like watching a bunch of squabbling members of the uh, uh, the Judean People's Party in the Monty Python movie. Uh, <laughs> well, well, rather, that, yeah, I mean, uh, well, job guarantee. What, what I mean, what what job is the is the question? I mean, if you're looking at the alternative to to a universal basic income. I mean, what? I mean, that question has to be what? I mean, yeah, if if, yeah, I if there what, are no jobs, what do people do? What do they live off, and how do they uh, provide inputs to to the economy? How do they buy stuff from Amazon? Yeah, 
And if they don't have an income, they can't buy from Amazon. If they if they if Amazon won't apply them, they can't have an income. So you get this 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 is a a dilemma we have to address at the social level at some point. And I Soon. think that yeah. yeah, that 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 point well again, my I come back always to what the ecology is gonna do to us. Um there's this bunch of monkeys chattering over how to divide up the uh, the bananas are uh, going to find as soon as there's no there's only one banana tree left. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, a recurring theme for sure. Uh, look, I don't know as we've come to any answer apart from the fact that society it's society's to blame uh, and it needs to sort it out. But I'm not sure how. That's the, the well, distressing to me, thing. To me, to me, the major thing would be working out a sensible system of micropayments to some extent, which would reduce some of the damage that's happened with the Internet being an unbalanced growth in terms of capacity to deliver. Amazon is exploited, uh, but not at the same time providing a micropayment system where we can pay back to things like, you know, which we used to have once quality journalism and diversified news. But that's just a commercial opportunity for somebody to do that. I mean, surely that's a no-brainer, unless banks or people who control the money are preventing that from happening. I think it's also the technological issue. How do you make micropayments actually profitable? Mm. And nobody seems to have cracked that. Inkle is the only thing I've seen which seems to work to some extent in the journalism space. Patreon works in terms of supporting creative writers and so on and artists. But uh, uh, at the so, so role for government involvement here then, presumably. Although uh, I, I'm very reticent to suggest that actually because when I think about trying to pay tax and uh, government's uh, involvement with any online system uh, normally is a horrendous experience. But they could certainly put some uh, some seed money to try and make it happen. Well, one wonders. I mean, you and I both had experience with the Australian government uh, doing their disastrous things to telecommunications in Australia, mate. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sceptical to go, go to suggest that the only solution, but we we have to acknowledge um, the, the, the trend towards dehumanisation of production on one extreme and the economies of scale of delivery on the other uh, that the internet has certainly enabled. So we, we have a, a classic pair of dilemmas coming our way. We do. All right. Uh, very good. That's cheered me up no end, Steve. Uh, You're we'll catch you again soon. Thanks. Cheers. Oh, dear. <laughs> and it is very interesting, isn't it, how governments around the world seem more concerned about the invasion of privacy from online companies rather than the impact that they're having on the workforce. Because, of course, you know, conventional economics says there will always be jobs. Now, next time, monetary policy versus fiscal policy. Which one is really doing the grunt work when it comes to protecting the economy from recessions and worse? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. 